We're going to talk about chairs today a lot. But stick with us because after today's episode, you'll never be able to look at a chair in quite the same way again, or perhaps even your life and faith. So get ready, listen up, and don't forget to take a seat. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Well, we have back with us on Signs of the Times Radio today, Nathan Brown, who's a, a regular writer in the magazine and uh, has also been on the podcast and radio show before. Welcome back, Nathan. Yeah, good to be back. Thank you. Excellent. So I think last time we, we talked, it was about a basketball, if, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong, and how, how active you, you are. And, one there. Yeah, that's right. Last time we were talking about refugees. Oh, refugees. That's right. The time before that, it was basketball. The time before that, it was basketball. We're, we're multifaceted folks. Well, that's true. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so with, with the basketball thing, you were telling us about how, you know, d- despite the fact that you're, you're in your 40s, you're active, you're getting out there, you're, you know, slam dunking that ball. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite. <laughs> We're running up and down. <clears throat> right, running up and down. But this time uh, you want to talk to us uh, about uh, sitting around on chairs. So that's that's very interesting. This this kind of reminds me of when I was doing my, my social science degree and we were going through philosophy class and uh, talking about Plato and his you know idea of ideal types you know versus reality and the allegory of the cave blah 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 all this philosophy stuff and you know mm-hmm. what what is the essence of a chair was <laughs> w- w- was the example given and that's right and and when I saw you you'd written this article which is entitled trusting faith that's here in the uh, the January February edition of Science magazine I, I wondered if if that's where you were going but you are talking about the theory of the chair but you went in a a bit of a, a different direction what what's what hmm. What is it with you and chairs, Nathan Brown? (laughs) Well, we all use them pretty regularly, and some of us probably use them far too often. If people like my friend Dr. Darren Morton would have the chance to get a voice in here, he'd be telling us, you know, that sitting is the new smoking, and we need to be all much more active than we are. Yeah. So chairs are something that we're all familiar with, and some of us too familiar with. So, (laughs) yeah, it's just finding that simple thing that is a part of our everyday lives, and and also that chairs come in so many different shapes and sizes, which is, you know, we use one single word that can describe so many different things. So mm. that's, that's a fascinating place to start as well. Yeah, all the, all the way from a sort of an old antique wooden kitchen chair all, all the way through to a, you know, a, a Jason recliner sort of thing. Yeah, and, and so many things in between. And, you know, you go into even so many different sizes, you go into a you know, a little kid's classroom and try and sit on one of their tiny little plastic chairs. And, you know, you realize that chairs fit different people at different stages of life and in different circumstances in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because, I mean, like you say, this is a very commonplace object that we, you know, we have in our houses, we have in our places of work and or entertainment or, or anything, you know, chairs are everywhere. And and yet we don't often think about it, but, but you could. There are lots of different angles and ways to, to think about a chair. You, you ran through a, a few in your article. Can you give us a <laughs> sort of a sneak peek of those? Well, and a part of it was inspired by a friend of mine who at the time that I was writing this article was very excited because he was going to spend a week at a chair-making course. As one and does. So, <laughs> <laughs> as you do. And so he um, he actually travelled down from New South Wales to Victoria to a place 
down here where he could spend a week working with you know, uh, some master craftsmen in hand making a wooden chair mm. and all the different parts of the process. And, and of course, he was just, you know, he, of course, he was someone, you know, to pay to spend a week doing that. You've got to be pretty into it for a start. Yeah. And then, then of course, when he came back from it, he just had all the stories and the explanations and the photos. And, and I got to, to sit on the chair that he made. So, mm. yeah, it was an interesting experience to, to think about so much thought going into a very common household item. Well, you um, would you would have to put a lot of thought into it, wouldn't you? Because I mean, <laughs> be, because first of all, you've from an engineering point of view, it's got to be strong enough, and then from an aesthetic point of view, it's got to be nice to look at, and then from an ergonomic point of view, it's got to be comfortable to sit on, and mm. and that basically results in a lot of different skills, you know, coming to fore. I mean, mm. getting all the angles right, and then the, <laughs> and then the joints, and then possibly some wood turning if you want sort of round decorative sort of. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it. it's a complex business. A chair is actually quite a challenge to make, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly when you're making it by hand in that kind of way, using hand tools and, yeah, it's quite a work of art in mm. that way. And so, you know, I got to appreciate chairs in a whole new way just through the experience of this friend of mine. So that was a little bit that was in the back of my mind or one of the, my starting points when I was writing this article mm. was – you know, we take this take a chairs so much for granted that we don't often think about it when we wander into a room and sit down. We don't stop and check the chair as if it's going to hold our weight or, mm. you know, it's just one of those things that's there in our house or there in our office or wherever we might be. Mm-hmm. So ubiquitous, so multifaceted, but also so complicated in a sense. Mm-hmm. In the article, I go through a number of different ways that you know, we can think about a chair. Mm. You know, you can think about it as this physical object that's in your house, but also what it's made from, the history of it, why it's the shape that it is. And, you know, a lot of times things like this in our homes have some, you know, long history of why they're the height they are, why they're the shape they are, all of those kind of things draw on a long tradition. Even if they're mass produced these days, you know, a chair is a certain height off the ground because, that's kind of what fits for the average sized human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, and sometimes I get reminded of this in chairs on aeroplanes that I'm a little bit taller than average. Yeah. And so, so, you know, those chairs sometimes don't fit me quite as well as they would someone who's a, a more average size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a question of if you end up with your knees around your ears or, or, or your feet dangling off the ground sort of thing. That's right. And, and that's not comfortable. And so it doesn't work particularly, you know, if, if the chair's too high or too low, it, you know, if you have to sit on it for too long, it can become quite uncomfortable. So the reason the chair is a certain size and shape and all those kind of things is, you know, there's a reason for it. And mm. somewhere along the way, somebody actually experimented and came up with that idea. So there's a lot of history mm. uh, in a chair and, and even just in the, I guess, the phenomenon of the chair. But if you want to look at a particular chair, you can also have, you know, your grandma's rocking chair that has been handed down through generations that has 
a particular history as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or, or you, see, you see those antique shows where there's some, hmm. you know, very informed person who says, oh, yes, this is a, a Queen Anne <laughs> chair from the whatever century and these were typical and blah, blah, blah. And, and you're like, wow, you know, and this is the timber and this is the, and they just know all about it just by looking at the shape of it. Or this is some avant-garde designer from 1973 and wow, <laughs> this is right. amazing and example. no one would ever want to sit on it, but it, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> that's right. So if you're, you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking, what the heck are they doing talking about <laughs> chairs for, for so long? I mean, have ha, have a little faith and, and hold on because this, we'll this, <laughs> this, is, go, this is going somewhere. So, get, sorry, c- continue, Nathan. So, you can look at it from the history and, the, you know, whatever of the chair and, as I said, you know, how it's been made, the, pro, the, you know, the wood or the plastic or the fabric or whatever it is that has been put together to be that chair. But then you can also look at it from the physics of the chair. Mm. Yeah, the re- the reality of a chair is that it's a lightweight way to make a platform a certain distance off the ground mm. that someone can sit upon and not fall over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and probably the simplest way to create a seat that somebody could sit on would be you know cut a cross steps cross section of a log mm. at the right height and you could sit on that. Yep. But it's not very transportable. You know, it's very heavy for the weight that it is. And so True. we've come up with this idea that we, if we, you know, just get this little platform, this little, you know, very relatively thin cross-section of seat and then put legs at its four corners, then that's a much more transportable way to sit on that same platform at that same height. Hmm. Yeah, I've obviously overthought this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in, there's the physics of just, overcoming gravity by making a platform you can sit on at a certain height off the ground that will be stable and won't fall over. Mm. But then you put a back on it and so you lean on it. You can lean back on it, which makes it a little bit more comfortable. You don't have to support all your weight in that way. But then you start working with things like levers that the pressure that you're putting by leaning back is that going to be counterbalanced by the weight of you sitting down on it. And all these things go into the physics of you know a chair. Mm. And, and, and the um, engineering, I guess. That's right. And so some, you know, anybody that sat on a variety of chairs, you know that actually some chairs are less stable than others. Mm. And all of those things are actual physics in action. Yeah. You know, we, le- we learn physics in high school and then kind of think, well, now I have to get on with life and get a job. But we actually, the realities of some of those things are day-to-day realities in something as simple as a chair. Mm. Yeah. Forces overcoming gravity that are then counterbalanced and all of those kind of things that holds a weight in place. So, you know, we can get all scientific and physical in this sense. Yep. yep. Or, um, or, or, or historical and, and aesthetic, <laughs> as, as you said before. That's right. And so another way to think about it is the human mechanics of sitting in a chair. Uh-huh. So then we get onto physiology. There are various ways of thinking about that. And, you know, I'm not a human physio- physiologist, but, you know, the reality of what it does to your body when you're sitting in a certain way. And if you're scrunched mm. up, you're far less comfortable compared to, you know, being able to lean back a little bit or, yeah, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, hey, hey, Nathan, have you ever tried one of those, I don't know if it's called a chair or a stool or a completely different word, but it's a sort of an alternative to a chair where you're sort of semi-kneeling on, on a pad and then you um, then you lean back and your, your bum is sort of on a bit of a tilted sort of platform and it has the effect of 
improving your posture. It was a bit of a thing in the yeah, so, in the sort yeah. of 80s, I think, probably the 70s and 80s. It was very cool, very ergonomic. Have, <laughs> it, it, ever tried one of those? Uh, yeah, a little bit. And I guess the other thing that people have done in, the, in a similar kind of way have been the old balance balls. Oh, yes, of course. Every, that was a trend for a while was that you wouldn't have a chair, you'd have one. And so, of course, you're exercising all your core muscles just by sitting there mm, because mm. that's maintaining – you need to maintain your balance on something that yep. – absolutely. Yeah, so – there's a lot of muscular work as human beings, as physical bodies sitting in a chair. There's a lot of things going on just in that process. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so many ways we can think about a chair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And probably, you know, I think there's probably, as you've mentioned, there'd be some listeners here just going, yeah, get over yourself, fellas. Um, yeah, that's all right. It's a chair, <laughs> for goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> It's a chair, and and I guess this is what I, what, to some extent, is the point of what what the article is about. Is mm. so we can come up with all these theories, and all of them are true mm-hmm. and valuable, and it, actually can help us understand mm. and appreciate a chair more, mm. and and even interesting to some people from some points of view. Yeah, that's right, and some people would have different interests in different aspects of it. You know, my friend who wanted to make chairs, you know, that's a different interest to an exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist who's interested in how you sit and what it does for your posture and, you know, whether you sit too long and you need to get up and walk around every few minutes to stay a little bit healthier and all of those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, sure. So if we put these all, all these things together, you know, do we come up with some kind of super theory of a chair? Oh, the grand unifying theory the of a chair. The grand unifying theory, theory of a chair. Again, people would get to the point of eye rolling and just say, yeah, Good on you. <laughs> the ultimate point of a chair is to sit out. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's not to come up with the grand theory of a chair. Mm-hmm. And if you're standing around looking at the chair to come up with this theory, you're actually not using the chair with what it's for. Mm-hmm. So you've, um, you've, you've, you're missing you've, the you've, point. You've got the coffee table of the chair there and you're flipping through the, the glossy pages and admiring mm-hmm. the, the art, and but you're doing it from, <laughs> from a standing position while an actual chair sits in the corner of the room unused. I mean, it's... Yeah, yes. it's, it's the, the point of the chair is to be sat on, and if if to be interested in a chair is well, that's you know all very fascinating. But mm. it, unless you actually you know park yourself on it, take yeah. a seat. It's it's you've a fairly point. point. It's a, you've missed the point exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and some of these th- things can be important. You know, to have a more comfortable chair can actually make it a better experience. Yeah, sure. And to to ensure that it's a chair that won't. You know, I was recently. Um, at a at a concert, listening, uh, watching a musician perform, just a couple of weeks ago, she pulled in the piano stool and one leg gave way. Oh wow! And that's not a good thing in the middle of, of a musical performance. And no one was harmed in the making of this um, <laughs> illustration. You know, they had to dash, dash around and find her something else to sit on. And so there's that basic thing that it's not a good idea just to dismiss all of this theory mm. and just sit on something that. You know, if it doesn't support you, you'll find yourself on a heap pretty qu- in a heap on the floor pretty quickly. Okay, all right. So uh, yeah, there's uh, a basic level that you need to kind of engage with thinking about a chair. Yeah, yeah, and I guess uh, there are, there are a lot of other things in life that are similar. I mean, you you um you know publish books, and I think of one you did was it last year or 2017? Um, Sue, Sue Rad's Food as Medicine, for example. Yeah. So this this is a, a book full of you know great healthy recipes and incredible food pictures, and you can flip through and 
and wow, you know, it's it's incredible. You could um you could do amazing things with that. You could translate it into Portuguese. You could you could memorize the recipes, you know, and you that'd be yeah. some sort of you know savant <laughs> savant sort of ability that you demonstrate by doing that. You could yep. you could get the you know the the first the first printing and sort of keep it as a collector's item. You could do a lot of things with that book. But, un- but unless you actually open that recipe, put it on your kitchen bench and say, right, we start with, you know, three cups of quinoa, then there's, there's not, a, not a whole lot of point in having it. You know, it's, it's a recipe book is there in order to help you, you know, make food and then eat it. Mm, and and it's, yeah. it's not being used for its primary purpose. You know, or, or sheet music, for example, you know, wow, what yeah. incredible sheet music. Oh, this is, you know, done by Bach and this is the history mm. and this is the story behind it. And there's some interesting you know, sort of musical dynamics going through this. And um, it's interesting how it changes key here. But mm. I mean, unless you actually pull out the, your instrument and, yep. and and follow those dots on the page and, and play the, the note, you play those notes so that people can actually hear the result, then you're, you're not, not doing music. Yeah, you're not doing music. Yeah, and, and, and you're not <laughs> using right. you're not using that sheet music, that manuscript, for the primary purpose for which it was designed. And I guess there there are a lot of things in life like that, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Your analogy with food as medicine reminds me of the my favorite review that we got of that book, which was by a. It was kind of a translation of. Uh, I think it was published in Swedish or Norwegian, oh, yeah. a review of food as medicine as the cookbook, which described it as so large and impressive as it's almost like a piece of furniture for your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the analogy fits. <laughs> but, but your point is exactly right, that, and getting it, you know, landing this back in the direction of faith, mm. that the point of faith is living. Mm. It's not theories. I mean, so much when we even say the word faith, we start immediately talking about theology or philosophy. You know, we could get into the history of it. We could get into the the minutiae of, you know, how it works or, you know, arguing about some of these kind of things. The reality is that if you get to the, if you find something that looks like a faith that, you know, again, just taking that quick survey of the chair, does this look like something that's going to hold me up? Mm-hmm. And the point is then to take a seat. Mm. And so faith is something to be put into practice in, in our lives. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we, need, we kind of just spend our lives circling, you know, trying to explain it, trying to argue about it, trying to convince ourselves about it, because you can have all the answers. You can have, you know, as you say, you can have memorized all the recipes in the book, but until you eat something, you haven't tasted it. You yeah. haven't you haven't used it for the purpose that it was designed for. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of something says in the Bible, like, um, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. You, mm-hmm. you need to actually, you know, taste in, in order to figure out, if, you know, is this recipe any good or not? You've got to taste it. And I guess yeah. it's the same with faith. It's the same with God. We can, like you say, we can theorize about it. We can write books about it. We can read books about it. But until we actually like make it real, make it practical in our lives, we're not actually using our faith, using our spirituality for the fundamental purpose for for which it exists yeah and from from the perspective of a christian faith yeah the the core of our faith is jesus Mm. and so we can we can speculate we can argue we can memorize we can all of these kind of things about him about his place in history about you know the the theological significance and argue about trinities and incarnations and all of Mm. these big Mm. words 
you know, or substitutions or atonements or, you know, whatever. Mm. The reality is there comes a point where we either choose to live our lives of someone who follows Jesus or we don't. Yeah. yeah. And it comes to the point, you know, and for me, this is why the teachings of Jesus, and I know, I'm not trying to discount some of the other aspects of the, the Jesus event or the Jesus you know, the significance of that for Christian history can't be downplayed in any well, Christian understanding cannot be downplayed in any way. But when we get to the teachings of Jesus that are practical about how we live our lives, and this is where we've got to get to the point of saying, you know, what if Jesus, you know, because of who we believe he is and was, because we believe what we believe about the significance of, you know, what that whole story is about, what if Jesus actually knows more about how to live life than we do. Mm. And so we start to take seriously some of the, you know, the things that he's taught. And this is where we can actually road test this. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't mean that if you, you know, follow everything by the book that life will go swimmingly from here on mm. because Jesus actually said, well, it's not that simple. And there are, you know, if you follow me, it's, it's not necessarily the easiest way to live life. Uh, but there's a coherence to life that comes with it that, um, you know, is this organizing principle around which we can, you know, we can order our lives. We can, when, you know, often when people sit down with me and say, hey, I want to write a book, you know, this is what I'd like to do. And they give me this brief overview of this idea for a book. And, you know, it's my job as a book editor to listen to people in that situation and to, you know, see if how, how I might be able to encourage them or help them in that process. So one of the key questions I'll ask them is, what is the key person that you would like your book to be for? Mm. You know, who's the person you would like to read that book? And I don't mean, you know, most authors would say, I want everybody in the world to read my book. <laughs> of course and they do, yes. <laughs> that's not a good answer. Yep. Because if you try and write a book for everybody in the world, nobody will want to read it. Yeah. But if you write a book for one person, the chances are there'll be lots of other one persons who will want to read it as well. Mm. And so if you have a strong idea of who that one person is, every time you have to make a decision about how I tell this story or do I put this part of the, you know, how would I explain this to that person, there's, that, there's something to make that decision about. So it makes the process of writing the book easier. Mm because there is always a rationale for making the, de you know, really a book is a long line of decisions that you need to make, choices between, you know, what you put in, what you leave out, how you tell it, how you don't sure, tell it, sure. all of those kind of things. And so, so I think that following Jesus in this way is that one thing that we can center our lives on that then is the reason for making all those other decisions. Okay, so so you're saying it's in in a similar way that if you're writing a book, you're you're focusing on that one person and you're deciding, like to, at each stage, what to leave in, what to leave out, which direction to go as you're writing. Yeah. It's similar in the way that we live our lives. If if we live our lives directed at one person and, and that person is Jesus Christ, we mm. we decide in in the light of of his response what to do, what not to do, and you know what decisions to make, what direction to to take. Is it is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. Now, mm. we need to choose who that one person is pretty carefully Yeah, if that's the thing we're going to organize our lives around and for, for various reasons and we could, you know, that's a whole other series of articles yeah. is why we would choose Jesus to be that person. Yeah. But, and it doesn't mean that all decisions are easy because some of the decisions will actually be very hard, mm. but you have the reason for making that decision. 
Sure, sure. Hey, Nathan, just it's interesting that you're saying this because just yesterday I was doing a, a bit of proofreading for Adventist Record magazine, and there was an article from you um, there about um, you know understanding very much what you're saying. You know what what does it yeah. mean to live a life of faith? What does it mean to follow you know Jesus' commission that He's given to to Christians? And mm. and you took that right back to Jesus' most famous address, his most famous talk, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, which you yeah. can you can find in the you know Gospel of Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And you you said that, hey, if you want to know how to live as a Christian, if you want to live out your, your life in you know in in concert, in in harmony with with Jesus' teachings, this is where you need to look. And that's got some pretty hard practical stuff in, in there, hasn't it? And it certainly is yeah. practical. It yeah. certainly is like trusting faith. And what 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 are some of the things out of the, the Sermon in the Mount that sort of grab you and, and make you think, well, yeah, this is actually a practical way to, you know, to rest the weight of your life in, in Jesus, in, in, your, in faith in him. Yeah, and certainly it's no, no coincidence that this is what I'm talking about now and that's what I was writing about last week. <laughs> well, that's right. It's, it's uppermost um, in your mind right now. I'm getting that vibe. You understand when you write something, it's one of those things that keeps echoing your head for a little while. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, but I definitely think these two ideas are linked and, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount is very challenging. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not something for the faint-hearted, but when you have that, you know, when it's it's also something you can road test, that you can experiment with. Mm-hmm. Say, you know, does this actually make sense of life? Does this, you know, do, is this good? Yeah, and so that's where faith becomes a practical thing. Yeah. When you go to sit yourself on a chair you might not rest your full weight on it straight away. Yeah. You, know, mate, you might kind of just kind of maintain your balance. <laughs> that's right. G- gingerly let a little bit of weight on it first. Yeah. That's right. But as it holds your weight, then you do relax a little bit more into it. Sure, sure. And that's, I think that's the experience we can have with experimenting with faith in that mm-hmm. way. So what, what, uh, what, what are some examples in the sermon uh, in the on the mount that that mm. uh, I guess you you could say well hey you could trust yourself to this like you said some of them are pretty challenging some of the yeah. some are pretty counterintuitive so c- can you give us some practical examples yeah well to me the worst case scenario that Jesus sets out is um, talking about an enemy and somebody who might be persecuting you yeah and Jesus command which is a fascinating way of understanding that is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you yeah wow now that's not an easy thing to do. That's no. you know, that that's a that's a heavy duty, hardcore you know call to live differently. Mm. But then when you look around the world and you say, well, what does it? Where does it get us to hate our enemies and curse those who persecute us mm, and take revenge? Yeah. Where does that get us? Well, it just gets us in history's endless cycles of violence. And there are just these glimpses, these glimmers of light throughout history where people have loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them, and it has made a difference. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that's where we see some of the great, you know, the great people of history who have chosen differently, mm. who have chosen to live by that different ethical standard, and that it has transformed human relationships. Mm, Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. come to mind. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some easy examples to start with. And, yeah. Yeah, and you know, this idea of nonviolent resistance, which Jesus spelled out even more in, you know, some of those famous cliches that get to, you know, turning the other cheek or, you know, giving someone the coat off your back or mm. um, going the second mile are actually all in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Oh, They're wow. all cliches in our you know, in our, even still in our culture today, but they're all from the Sermon on the Mount about how to resist 
violence and oppression non-violently, mm. but, but yeah. still actively resisting them. Yeah, and yeah. subverting them. But, but doing it with, a, with an attitude of love. And this is an amazing thing that Martin Luther King you know, said repeatedly. He said, you, you know, you, you actually need to uh, resist in a way that actually wants the best for your enemy, that shows a love for your enemy, not to, yeah. not to overcome him, not to beat him, but to, to actually you know, invite him to, to join you so that both you and, and he or she you know, will be better people at, at the end of the process. Yeah, and that's it. And that's such a, you know, to me, that... Yeah, you know, that's a faith that I can get excited about. And, you know, again, you rest your weight on it. You start trying it in some practical ways in your life. And, you know, rather than the big theory of the chair, we're simply just, you know, does this work? Can mm. we sit on it and experience this and actually live it in our lives in a practical way rather than, you know, the, the article you referenced, the other article you referenced that I wrote is, is talking about how for the first 300 years of Christian history, when Christians were teaching uh, new believers, they were teaching them practical ways to live. Mm. Not, they weren't teaching them so much philosophies and theories and theologies and doctrines. They were much more saying this is a way to live in the world that is different. Yeah. And that, to me, that excites because you know, we look around the world and, yes, we need a different way to live in the world that is different. Mm. But you see those glimpses throughout history that actually do work and that's kind of exciting. Wow, it, it is exciting. And look, I, I could keep going for another half an hour on this and, and exploring this, <laughs> but, but but I think the, the point is really well made, Nathan, that, you know, faith in the end is about, you know, trusting the, the weight of your life uh, on it to mm. to sort of test it and, and see whether it's it's the real deal or not. So, yeah, so thank you so much uh, for that challenge and for writing the article and certainly encourage our um, listeners to check that out at the um, at our website, signsofthetimes.org.au. And thanks so much. Nathan Brown for being with us today. Not a problem. Thank you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 